verse 1. As our study of this Old Testament book continues this morning, we find ourselves at another unusual and even odd milestone in the lives of the people. They're making their entrance into the promised land, the land that was described as a land flowing with milk and honey, a land the Lord had given them, given to his dearly beloved people, his chosen people, out of his covenant faithfulness to the promise he once made to Abraham. You might recall that in chapter 3 we, we saw how the Lord parted the waters of the Jordan River while it was at flood stage. And he made possible their crossing over into the land of Canaan. And he, and he did that in exactly the same way that he had previously parted the waters of the Red Sea, allowing Israel to escape the clutches of Pharaoh. And now they cross over safely on dry land again. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, carried by the priests, is in the middle of the river, and the people cross over. And that Ark is in the river, symbolizing God's saving presence among His people. He is loving them. He is protecting them. The flood waters of judgment are held back. They're following the leadership of Joshua, and they arrive safely on the other side. And then, in chapter 4, we're going to read about a very deep, and significant thing that happens, a symbolic act in which the people will engage. And so we begin understanding this by looking at chapter 4, verse 1, and I'll read through verse 7, the word of the Lord. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. And then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And this is the word of the Lord, ever true, ever sufficient, May the Lord bless his proclamation and its hearing. Twelve stones, twelve men, and twelve big rocks on their shoulders. What in the world is this about? Well, following the crossing of the river, when all the Israelites had safely been delivered to the other side, the Lord directed Joshua to find these twelve men, to pick up these twelve stones out of the middle of the river and carry them across to the other side and place them at the site of their first night's lodging. Well, we read that that's exactly what happened. No questions asked. Twelve men selected by Joshua go out into the river. We can read this in verse 8. The people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. 
as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over to the place where they lodged, and they laid them down there. Picking up rocks from what is now the dry riverbed of the river, taking those rocks that were hidden by the water, taking them from the middle of the river and placing them on the shore where they will camp. What is that about? Well, first think about the fact that the number 12 is is very significant here. Why 12 men? Why 12 stones? Well, the the 12 is, is certainly symbolic of the entire company of the Israelites. They are all included. Whatever this means, whatever this unusual command is about, it is about the whole nation. It isn't about just the priests. It's not just about these 12 men. It's not about the 40,000 trained infantrymen now that Israel has that we'll see later. It is about the whole company of Israel. They are one people. They are united in the love of God. They are united by the covenant promises. They are one nation under God, literally. And that's why you have 12 stones and 12 carriers of those stones. But really, what are these stones about? As we read this text, now so long, so far removed from when it first occurred, our curiosity is piqued, and we want to know what these big river rocks are all about. Why would the Lord have them do this? And maybe a better question to ask is, why at such a critical time? They're, they're, in, they're in war. They're on the field of battle. It's a critical moment. Why take such critical time to perform this task, to go hunting rocks in the middle of where the river used to be? Why this unnecessary distraction? It's so dangerous. Canaanites are all around. They are well armed. They have chariots of iron. Why take the time to stop and pick up rocks? Well, the answer begins to develop in verse 7. These aren't just rocks. According to the Lord, for the people of Israel, these stones will be, verse 7, a memorial forever. Forever. The key word in that explanation is the word memorial. The 12 stones that these 12 men take from the middle of the river will function as a sacred reminder of something most significant for the covenant people. A memorial is a place of remembrance. We might even use the word milestone. It is a hallowed milestone. We're we're helped a bit in understanding what these stones represent by by another word that appears in verse 6. Joshua said that these big rocks taken from the river would function as a sign among you. And they will be piled up like a monument on the other side, but they will be pointing to something. They will be pointing to something that happened in the immediate past, but is also true in the future. This monument built with these 12 stones set up at the place where they will lodge will testify to a truth, a truth anchored to the past, but supplying hope for the future, a sacred shrine, an edifice, 
having significance not only for that generation of Israelites that actually did this, but for the coming generations of Israelites, the coming covenant members, those in the future. The monument will remain there forever, and as it just sits there, it will give silent testimony to something most essential for the faith of Israel. It is, it is set up by God's command. It's significant because God said, do it, and then the Lord, the Lord injects meaning into it. And I'm going to submit to you that what they did so long ago has everything to do with you and me here today. These stones set up like a monument will be for much more than merely remembering, more than merely calling to mind certain things, but this monument would be a summons to remember with concern, to remember with loving reflection, to remember, as one says, with a corresponding degree of action. This is big. It is so big that you would stop your war to do it. It is so big that all would pause, as it were. The clocks would stop, and you would give full attention to the creation of this monument at the Lord's command, because it really is big. It really means something. So what do these stones mean? What is this about? Well, read with me again verses 6 and 7. Here is where the answer appears. Joshua envisions a time when the little children are going to be able to talk, and they're going to do what children do. They're going to ask questions. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Let your eye drift down the page a bit to the end of the chapter where this is repeated. Notice verse 21 where Joshua says it again. Joshua 4, 21. Then Joshua said to the people, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea when he dried it up until we all passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now there's the full explanation of what these stones mean. That's what you're to tell the children when they ask those questions. Here we see that the purpose of this edifice, the clear purpose of the monument, is to signal to all generations, even to the world, what had just transpired in their presence just a few moments ago when God parted the river and they walked over on dry land. That raging river Jordan, swollen as it was by the spring rains, 
The waters cut off. The priests carrying the ark of the Lord, representing the presence of the great king in the middle of the river. And the river is stopped up as if you turned off the valve that happened before their eyes. And they cross on dry land. And this monument is to give testimony that that happened, that it was big, and that it should be remembered for all generations. In that moment when they crossed over, God did the impossible. For God, nothing is impossible. The power of God was revealed at the river. He delivered them from peril. The final obstacle they faced before they crossed into the Jordan, or rather crossed into Canaan, the promised land, it was removed by the Lord. There is no explanation coming as to what happened in human terms or in terms of science or any other explanation. This was the hand of God. The mighty power of God was released at the Jordan. And with Isaac Watts, we can all say, I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad, and built the lofty skies. I have a feeling that's what they were singing when the waters parted, the mighty power of God. And these stones are testifying to the power of God to save. He merely spoke. He merely sounded his voice. He merely waved his finger. He merely thought the thought, and the river stopped, and they walked over on dry land. Nature bowed before the sovereign king. Amazing. If there's any doubt that that happened, and maybe there is, I want to show you that there was no doubt among the pagans of Joshua's day. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. What happened when they crossed over? We're told. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, when they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Now imagine that. These Canaanites, these Amorites, the people of the seven nations were well armed, well organized with iron chariots, with great kings, with great military strategists, with walled cities. And when they heard that the waters of the Jordan had been cut off and God's people walked across on dry land, those mighty people stood there and melted like ice cubes on a hot summer sidewalk. That's what happened. That shows you the dimensions of the miracle. Amazing. They simply heard about it. And in all those walled cities, those kings and those armies and those military strategists, they are quaking in their shoes at the mere mention of the name of Yahweh. That's how big a miracle it was. That just sends chill bumps down my back. What's interesting about that, that's the same thing that Rahab had reported. Remember when the spies first came to Jericho and she met them? And do you remember what Rahab said to the two spies? Oh, she said something very similar. She said, we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea. 
As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. And here again, it happens for a second time. The nations melt before the people of God because God is for them. And if God is for them, then who can be against them? And so the memorial, that rock pile, is to be a perpetual reminder of what the Lord had done for his people. And he did it because he loved them. He did it because he was going to deliver on his promise to save them. He did it to give them rest. He did it to give them peace. He did it to give them unparalleled blessings in their own land. That pile of rocks would be a memorial and a sign, an emblem of their salvation by God's grace and power, and a sign of judgment for everyone who does not believe. And that's what those stones mean. You can see what the Lord is doing, can't you? Oh, not that we could get into His eternal mind, But I think we understand enough about the working of the Lord to draw some conclusions. Don't you know what the Lord is doing? He is forcing his people to stop and to pause and to recognize that God had saved them. They had not delivered themselves. Oh, they had blessings in abundance. They had known blessings for centuries. The generation prior to them had known the blessings In the wilderness, they were a rich people in blessings. And now the Lord is saying, stop, stop. Look at the monument. Look at the sign. Look at the memorial. And remember that I did this. I saved you. You did not save yourself. No one intervened. No one helped you. No one assisted you. I alone am your Savior. The Almighty God did the impossible because He loves you. And as the generations come by that place and they see those rocks piled up, those Israelites will know who they are. And they will know whose they are. And they will know how they got to be whose they are. By God's grace, by God's mercy, and by God's power. And when they stop and they observe the stones And they begin to remember with conviction and to remember with love and to remember with clarity. They will be moved deep in their hearts to respond with renewed commitment and service to that God. They will be moved by grace, moved by love. Those 12 stones, don't you see, will prompt and strengthen greater faith in the Lord. There are battles. There are battles ahead. They've got to go to Jericho. They've got to go other places. They will look at the stones and they will say, the Lord fought for us. He is our God. He brought us here. We belong to him. There is nothing to fear. And then with renewed, nourished, reinvigorated faith, they will live lives of full commitment to their king. Oh, how big this is. How big this is. But it won't happen by accident. Look at the mechanism the Lord employs, the Lord commands for the transmission of this simple message borne by the stones. 
Verse 7, when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them. Note the same thing in verses 21 and 22. When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. They must be taught. They must be instructed. They must be, they must be told. This isn't the first time the Lord has commanded such a deliberate and specific transmission of divine truth. You can think back to when Israel was captive in Egypt and they celebrated the first Passover, Exodus 12. And through Moses, the Lord commanded his people, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service that is by the Passover? Then you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt and he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses And then in Deuteronomy 6, in the context of the great commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your might, Moses then says, when your sons ask you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules and the commands of God? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out by a mighty hand. And so the Lord is commanding very specific instruction to be transmitted by his people down the line, down through the generations. At this sacred site, there is to be teaching. There is to be instruction. Oh, not only from the priests, and not only from the theological experts, indeed from them, but parents, parents providing the explanation of the monument, of the sign, of the memorial to those children who are mature enough to ask the question, what does it mean? And when that question comes, the parents have an answer. They highlight the redemptive significance of this event. This is about God. This is about salvation. This is what the Lord did. Let me tell you some stories. And they begin to instruct their children. It is more than simply that God did something big. It is what it meant. It is God's power in the story of redemption, not just the raw display of power, but it is the power of God to save, and that must be deliberately taught to the children. There's a strong, strong way this is communicated here that we don't pick up in our English translations. But in verses 21 and 22, You see it more strongly stated. In the other verse, you will tell them, but here the fathers are to let them know. Literally, it means the fathers are to cause them to know. They are to lovingly drill it into the souls of their children. They are to see to it that their children understand. And what they are to drill into their hearts, what they are to make them understand is the fact that the great covenant God, out of love and mercy, dried up the waters of the Jordan. Verse 23, and he did it for you. He dried up the waters of the Jordan for you. 
and we walked over on dry land. And this proves that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that he is to be feared as their God forever. Deliberate instruction. The sign and deliberate instruction as to what the sign means. uh, Transferred to every child, every succeeding generation. So everybody knows exactly what this means. And the truth is not lost with time. But look at something else that's extremely important in verse 24. Deliberate instruction as to what the sign is. And then look at the result that should be witnessed in the lives of our children. It should transform them. That they should fear the Lord forever. The only way we know that our children know the Lord is if they fear the Lord. Do they fear the Lord? What is this fear? What is this fear we should see in our own hearts and we we want to see exploding in the hearts of the generations that follow? What is it? Well, it is the cultivation of wholehearted loyalty and dedication to God. This fear, as has been defined, is the most fundamental expression in the Old Testament of faith and religion. Another says, this fear is nothing less than reverential trust in God that makes us want to please and obey Him. Another says, it is not a slavish dread. It is rather the recognition of God's glory and majesty coupled with personal trust. That's the impact that the truth should have. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. I don't have time to to walk through every passage in the Old Testament that makes this point, but you you can remember a few of them. In the law, as a stipulation of the covenant, the Lord says through Moses to the people of Israel, you shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear the Lord, for I am the Lord your God. And again, in Deuteronomy 6, Moses explains, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. You shall serve him. You must swear only by his name. And then in the succeeding generations, as the Israelites maintain this dynamic faith in Yahweh, as they should, as the fear of the Lord continues to blossom as the generations develop and as they come and as they go, then the payoff, then all the peoples of the earth, they're going to know something. They're going to know that the hand of God is mighty. That's an amazing thing. You know what that means? It means that as God's own people pause to worship Him, as they teach His truth, as they recognize and commemorate the great events of salvation, as fear, as the fear of the Lord, the healthy fear of the Lord explodes in Him, then the nations will know that the Lord is mighty. That's how the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Girgashites and all the otherites That's how they knew Israel was nearby, the fear of the Lord. That's all the advertisement they needed, the fear of the Lord. 
and they passed it on to their children. Well, as you probably have suspected, we're not going to finish this sermon today, at least if you want to have lunch. And we're going to come back to this passage on Palm Sunday, next Lord's Day, and look further into the meaning of the signs. In fact, you can probably make the connections already, can't you? Because we've had the, and are going to have the two signs, the two new covenant signs today. We'll save that for next Lord's Day. But let's make some connections before we come to the table. What we've learned so far, how does this passage so far point us to Christ and show us his great work in the new covenant? Some very simple ways, some very simple things to reflect on. First is God has done what he said he would do. At the time of the crossing of the Jordan River, think about what had happened. The Lord had established his people. He had preserved them and sustained them for over 400 years. They survived in the wilderness despite their sins. He called one man way back when, Abraham. He gave Abraham a promise. I'm going to bless you to become a great nation. And the Lord has done that. Here is this great nation. And the Lord promised more. He promised that he would deliver them from their enemies. He would would cause Israel's enemies to, to run that he would fight for them. Listen to what he said in Exodus. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Again in Exodus, the Lord is the one who caused Pharaoh's chariot wheels to swerve and to drive with difficulty. And even the Egyptians said in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the Red Sea, the Lord is fighting against us. Well, the Lord had proved himself to be true. He has fought the battles He has given the blessings. He has preserved the nation. He saved them in the water and through the water. He delivered them to the other side. And now they're in Canaan, their home where they will rest. The Lord has delivered everything he said he would. Amen. And that's the same faithful God we serve. The same faithful God. But we have experienced even greater blessings. We haven't been delivered at the Red Sea. We haven't seen the waters part twice. And we're not going to see Goliath killed. We're not going to see fire come down from heaven and destroy the prophets of Baal. We're not going to see the glory, fiery theophany on the summit of Mount Sinai. But I would submit to you that what we know in Christ is greater by magnitudes than all of that. The same faithful God that saved Israel, his old covenant people, twice in the Red Sea and in the Jordan River has brought us out of death into life by his only begotten Son. Think about the power of the life of Jesus. Think about who Jesus was, who he is, what he's done, what he is doing. Think about his life, the life of Jesus, the summit of God's power. Think about the death of Jesus on the cross, our substitute, 
dying in our place. The death of the Son of God. Who can even begin to put their heads around that? The power of God in the dying of His Son. Imagine that. And the resurrection. Not even death, not even the grave, not even all the powers of hell could destroy our Savior. And He flicks them off as if they're nothing. And on the third day, the tomb is empty. And then He ascends to the Father, rightly reassuming His throne as King of kings and Lord of lords. There's nothing better than that. And that's what you have. You don't have a Red Sea, but you have Jesus. The author, the finisher of our salvation. Oh, we crossed over in him. We've entered into Canaan through him. He has conquered and is conquering our enemies for us. And all that remains for the saints are mop-up battles. But the war is over. Our guilt, our sin, our condemnation, and our death. They saw the death of the Canaanites and the Girgashites, and the otherites. And our Joshua has killed our guilt, and our condemnation, and our shame, and our spiritual death. And we've been resurrected to new life. And in him we have joy, and rest, and peace, and life in the ages for all eternity. That God is our God, and our blessings in Christ are infinitely greater. And then one final thought. This great gospel of this great God must be deliberately preserved and transmitted. It begins by you and me, the adults, the leaders of our families and this church, believing and being convinced of the facts ourselves. We need to be the first to pray, Lord, Lord, I believe, but, but help my unbelief. We need to be sure about what we believe. We need to know the truth. For we have no truth to pass on if we don't know it. We can't explain the meaning of the signs if we don't know the Lord and don't know the things of the Lord. And so we must all be theologians. That is, those who study the Lordship of of our God. We must know the truth. And then, my brothers and sisters, we must evangelize our own children. And I would even say, without the slightest hesitation, that before we even think of going outside the four walls of this church with the gospel, we must take the gospel to our children. We must teach the truth to our children. God, help us if we go across the globe but neglect our own children. When our children ask, we need to have an answer, an informed, biblical, truthful, accurate answer. Daddy, what do these stones mean? Daddy, who is Jesus? Daddy, who is God? Daddy, why did he die? And we need to have an answer. And so does mommy, and so does the elder, and the deacon, and the Sunday school teacher, and every adult member. We need to know the answer and evangelize the next generation because they will not get it by themselves. It must be taught. 
And it must be taught with deliberateness, with tenacity. We must train them. We must tell them. We must teach them the whole counsel of God with the result that they will fear the Lord and that He will be their God forever. The greatest blessing that we can give the next generation is not this building, as lovely as it is. I hope it's still here for them. The greatest blessing we can give our children is not an earthly inheritance, and and yet as I say that, I, I pray that you'll have one to pass on, or an education, or a scholarship, or athletic stardom. The greatest blessing you can give your children is the truth that will lead them to fear the Lord God. Without at all trying to sound simplistic, the answer to what's wrong with the youth today can be answered here. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The result of our teaching and our preaching and our parenting should be that our children fear the Lord. And only then will we know that they know Him. And the greatest blessing we can give this lost world is our own fear of the Lord. As we fear the Lord. And as that fear is manifested by worship, that we love the Lord and we love the company of the saints and we love to worship in the corporate assembly and we are committed to Him and we trust Him and we obey Him. When our fear is evidence like that, the nation's Hampton Cove and Huntsville and Madison and North Alabama and even the world and all the enemies of God will know that the Lord reigns. And I believe that with all of my heart. Our evangelism begins here with you and me fearing the Lord. That we love Him. We worship Him. We serve Him. We are committed. We obey Him because He's loved us. And what power there is in that. Just simply the people of God fearing the Lord and loving Him first. Would that open the door to world missions? Would that open the door to missions across the street? I believe it would. Oh, beloved, let's look at those stones. Let's remember what they're there for. Let's teach the truth about them. Let's learn to fear the Lord. And then let's just sit back and see what God does. He might bring down the walls of Jericho. You never know. Will you pray with me?